The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. I'll be your host, James Fox, along with us. Looking forward to talking to you again. James, it's always a pleasure because, uh, boy, do we have opinions on baseball things. And today's show is no different. Lots happening as we enter February of 2021, a year, James, following one of the most inconsistent years of professional sports that we've ever seen. And I think baseball topped the list just because they were forced to handle everything all at once right away in March of 2020 when things shut down. And we all know how the negotiations went between the Major League Baseball Players Association and the owners. We don't want to revisit that, but we got to taste a little bit of it this time around, James. It wasn't as bad, but we got a taste of it. I want to get your thoughts on a lot of White Sox news and the latest addition that the team brought back that we're familiar with, of course, Carlos Rodon homegrown prospect, draft pick. He's back. We'll discuss that. We'll also discuss how it impacts Michael Kopech, Dylan Cease, Reynaldo Lopez. And we could also look forward to, well, Bob Nightingale reports that the White Sox aren't interested in Nelson Cruz. How does that affect the rest of the roster, specifically in Andrew Vaughn? So plenty of stuff to talk about in today's episode, James, plus much more. First, let's talk about the MLPPA as well as the owners, because to me, like going into this offseason, there was a lot on the line because we know that looming is the 2021 CBA. There was a few things that were left out on the table that weren't ironed out prior to free agency. And now we're seeing these clubs make moves, assuming that one, the designated hitter rule isn't going to happen, which has been reported the case. And two, what are we looking at in terms of playoffs? I know the owners want expanded playoffs for revenue sharing that is distributed across Major League Baseball, but you know things are never as easy as things should be laid out to be. So, James, your take so far on the negotiation period here in 2021? Yeah, so you know, good to be with you. It just kind of sucks, and honestly, like talking about this stuff's terrible. And you know, looking at like millionaires versus billionaires isn't fair either, right? Because you're like one to three year players like aren't really millionaires. So, you know, it's just, there, there's a current collective bargaining agreement in place is like the easiest way to explain it. Right. And there's an agreement in place that 
entails this season. The season starts April 1st, spring training starts whatever, February 17th, and the players uh, you know, have already started ramping up and getting ready, so they, they don't want to change anything. They're, they're under agreement right now. So, you know, it goes back to the old rules. Um, you know, the 26-man roster stays. But other than that, I mean, no DH in the National League as of right now. Five teams per league um, in the playoffs. So, you know, it's just, you know, I thought they might get something done. But the, the owners just, you know, they didn't offer enough to the players. What the owners basically said was, like, they want expanded playoffs which makes sense for them because it's a lot of TV money. And it was kind of fun last year, I think, you know, for all the fan bases to see that. Um, but, they, you know, but they, they're not really offering the players like a big, a big enough piece of the pie for them to take it. They were offering them DH, but the players don't think that's like a fair trade. So, in, so the players like didn't counter. They were just kind of like, no. And by saying no, like they have a CBA in place. So they'll just like do it the old way. So I think like my issue is like, just that the two sides just can't come to the table and figure it out, right? Like you have an agreement or you you have to figure out 2020 and beyond in December regardless. So like the owners wanted to start late. They, they want to push the season back a month and it, they would play 154, but the players would still get paid for 162. The owners want to push it back a month. And look, like I know everybody like hates the billionaire owners, but like I think it's reasonable. Like they they think if they push it back a month, they can have more fans in the seats, which is more revenue for them. Like which I don't think is like an unreasonable request, but you know you have to make it worthwhile to the players. And as of right now, like if they expanded the playoffs, like the players wouldn't receive any of the TV revenue. So I think there was a deal to be had, but they just like, for whatever reason, didn't do it. Like DH in the national league, uh, you know, the, this, it was like seven teams in each league playoff proposal. I think if you give the players like 50% of the TV revenue split, like maybe it gets done, but you know, the owners like didn't do that. I think they, they expected the players to counter and the players don't want to counter um, because there's a CBA in place already, and by them countering, then that's like admitting that they could change it. it. It's it's all like super technical and weird. I don't think we know for sure yet that there won't be expanded playoffs in DH in the NL. That could just like happen two days before the season starts. Um, but you know, this agreement obviously got denied. So right now, I mean, they just they have to assume that spring training is starting February seventeenth, and the season will start April four April first, like under the old rules. So that's the good part about this year compared to last year is that there's like definitely going to be baseball. It's just, you know, acrimonious, I guess, like on both sides. It's like you, you would think that they would like learn and like actually work together. And it, it really doesn't bode well for, you know, the, the talks for the next CBA that expires in December. Yeah. There's a, that's a great synopsis, James. And I think you hit on a few things. And of course we have to look forward to next year's CBA. And you're right. It seems like the owners and the players association can never find common ground. It's always they're trying to sit on their stance and they're unwilling to budge and they feel like they have to come away the victor when, like you said, the 154 games and you push back the, the start of everything by a month. That that makes sense to me to an extent. Uh, but but there are stipulations like attached to that as well, like you were saying. And I also meant and you said that the players association didn't want to counter the owner's recent offer, which tells me, like you said as well, everything's going to go on as planned. 
And do you know why? Like, what is the reason the Players Association declined that deal and they didn't want to counter? So, so my assumption is just that, you know, the players are saying, like, we have an agreement. Like, there's no reason to, like, talk about any of this because we have an agreement in place, right? So I think by them countering, they're then proving, like, their original argument false. Like, they're, they're saying, like, oh, we have a CBA, like, we have rules in place, like, there's no reason to, like, go back to the table and change anything. But by them countering, they would that, that argument would basically be off the table. Whereas, like, you know, it seems like semantics to me. Like, that's where I wish you had two adults in the room that could just, like, sit across from each other and figure this thing out, right? But the problem is the players feel like if they give in at all, that the owners are going to use it against them in negotiations the next time. And look, they probably will. There's, like, a long history of them doing so. So, like, I, I understand um, the issues, but there's like all sorts of stuff with like, and we're going to, I want to get into um, the expanded playoffs a little bit more, but like there, you know, there's like the playoff shares and stuff are like important. Like Mike mm-hmm. Trout doesn't care. Right. But like, you know, if you were a Dodgers player last year that won the world series and you were like in your second year, like you had almost $600,000 in playoff shares. Like that's like big time money for some of these guys. So, you know, like the rank and file players are not, like the top players that that are going to get paid regardless. So it's just like, it's very nuanced. It's not as easy as like, you know, the hot takes on Twitter that are like, why would the players give into the owners? Like, you know, and I don't feel bad for the billionaires. Like, I don't think anybody does, but like, I mean, I do understand like why not having fans in the seats would like alter the way, you know, that they do business. And I mean, I think that's just like a fact at this point. I think what you said was so true about, yeah, if the Players Association decides to counter, it's admitting defeat to an extent, not ultimately a defeat, but a little bit, right? I mean, they're giving in to the owners and they're playing the game that the owners want to want to dictate. So that's a good point. And you mentioned the expanded playoffs. Let's dive into it because we know the importance of expanded playoffs for these owners because it's universally shared, these playoff revenues that they're generating. So, I mean, that's obviously incentive for the owners to have expanded playoffs, but there, there may be some benefits too to major league baseball across the 30 team league here with expanded playoffs. I mean, more playoff teams means more competitive seasons for maybe some, some teams that are saying, okay, we're not going to be competing no matter what, even if we're around 500 at the deadline, we're going to be selling off no matter what. That's our plan with expanded playoffs. Maybe things could be a little different. James, I know you have some strong opinions on this. I think, you know, the, the five and five scenario, it's tradition. I know they included the, the wild card round here, but I mean, overall, if they're going back to the simplicity of what the current CBA has, I think it's interesting to at least explore the idea of how would it look with expanded playoff teams, maybe not 10 from each league, but you know, six, seven, eight, that even eight, that may make some sense. Yeah, so I think they didn't want to go back to eight again. It sounded like the plan was going to call for seven in each league, which, you know, I'm assuming the first, the number one seed then gets a bye, and then it's, you know, probably two, seven, three, six, and four, five. And look, like, I think home field makes makes some difference, right? I mean, obviously, last year it probably didn't, and you can make the argument that, like, without fans it didn't matter. But, I mean, like, you want home field if you can get it, and you get last at bat. So, like, I think that's enough of an incentive, but so the people that are very much against expanded playoffs look at it like in a macro sense, right? So they say that like, if it's easier to make the playoffs, then teams 
like it won't be, it, it obviously like, you know, in theory then wouldn't be as hard to make the playoffs. Right. So teams would spend less money in general, because why would you push the chips into win a hundred games when you could just win 88 and still make it now? I don't necessarily disagree that that would happen, but I think the top teams would still try quite a bit. I just think you would have more teams competing and more teams trying to win and get into the playoffs. So like, I guess you have to decide like what's, what's better for the game, right? Like it hasn't hurt the NFL going to more playoff teams, but again, baseball is quite different, right? So in baseball, you know, it's not like you need the top quarterback or like the best player on an NBA, on an NBA court. anybody can beat anybody in in like, especially if it's like three games, which is a little bit crazy. So like, that's the argument, but I do think it's better, you know, to have six or seven teams like trying to compete for the playoffs than what it's going to be. I think if they go through with this year where it's five in each league, I think you're going to see massive amounts of tanking and teams just like selling off like crazy, because I think, you know, the American league is very top heavy as we saw last year, right? The White Sox and Twins, I think both at the top of the Central, pretty good. The Yankees, really good. And then, you know, Toronto trying and Tampa Bay has voodoo magic and they're, they're going to be pretty good too. And then Houston, right? So that's like seven teams I think I just listed for five spots. So if you're Cleveland or the A's and you're like struggling, like why would you even bother? You're just going to like sell off everything at that point and like, rebuild because you're not going to make the playoffs whereas there's seven teams you might have 10 teams competing for seven spots the 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 national league is even even crazier because that league's like really good i mean if you look at the nl east i think there's four teams in that division capable of making the playoffs but i think philly is clearly fourth and if you're them and there's five playoff spots up for grabs and you have the braves the braves and the mets in front of you like what are you even doing like are you even going to be trying by the deadline if you're a team in the NL West right now with the Dodgers and the Padres like above you like what are you going to do like i know people would just say they should spend more but like that's not realistic either like you have no chance so i just think it keeps more markets you know in the mix for the ultimate goal which is a title and if it waters it down a little bit so be it. I don't know if it's actually worse for the game. Like a lot of people are arguing that it is this week. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah, you make a strong argument. And it's something that I'm sure will be brought up again uh, by next year. And again, it's, you know, the biggest part of it is for the owners to generate revenue. And <laughs> it's all the money that they want. And it makes sense. Yeah, like as of right now, like the so the playoff argument is like even in the current playoffs, I think the, the players get they get gate revenue from yeah. the from the divisional series. And that's pretty much all they get for the playoffs. So like I think the 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 owners like expanded the agreement to where they get like a bigger percentage of it, right? But the players get none of the TV money. So mm-hmm. that's why I just think it's like an easy fix, right? Like if the owners were just like, yeah, we'll give you like what a certain percentage of the TV money for the playoffs, like I think you'd have a deal. Like I don't really think the players care much about the you know, the issues that a lot of the fans have said where it like disincentivizes winning. I think that's just like something they're saying. I think all of this comes down to money, even like, and obviously I'm more cynical than, you know, some others and people that listen to this podcast all the time know that like, it's about money. 
Like, look at look at Arizona, right? Like, the whole thing came out about how, like, they want to push the season back for safety. No, they want to push the season back because, like, they want fans in the stands. And I don't right. necessarily think that that's unreasonable. But, like, in Arizona right now, you're going to be 25% capacity for spring training games. Like, the Coyotes owner has fans in the stadium at NHL games, and they want to push back, you know, in a month. It, does, it doesn't make any sense. And, you know, not that we're going to, like, get into, like, COVID again because, like, God, I, I – want to stop mm. but i mean arizona i'm sorry but like they don't have any restrictions in place as eric log and hagan has been on here and others are sean williams um that writes for us they, they don't they haven't had restrictions in place at all so i don't know why people assume that like arizona is going to be any better you know march 20th than it would be february 20th so you know saying it's for health and safety like sounds fine but it's just because you know if the season starts in May instead of April, there's a better shot that, you know, you could have stadiums at 50 or 60% capacity instead of like the 25% that it might be to start with. And, you know, I think owners like, they would like to make some money back. Yep. And that's the name of the game. They're trying to make money. Biblical losses, right, James? Is that what's been flying around the uh, grapevine? That's what Tom Ricketts said, right? Biblical losses. And the Cubs yeah. are getting absolutely pounded this off season and their payroll still higher than the White Sox payroll. Well, there you go. There you go. Yeah, lots of lots of great stuff, James. Yeah, you're locked in as always. Appreciate you sharing for us and the listeners. Let's let's transition a little bit because when we think about spring training, you know, I get all warm and fuzzy inside. It's February. This is the time where I start to get the itch real badly of okay, late January, early February. I need some some mitts to be popping, some bats to be cracking. And we're looking forward to spring training, all things considered, starting on time. You know, typical schedule. I mean, that's great for the baseball fan. You know, behind the scenes, it might not be great, you know, because there's a lot of issues going on. But hey, we got baseball in a full season of it, which is a little different, obviously, because now we can evaluate the White Sox over 162. This team has some depth now. You know, they made a lot of moves already, and maybe they're done, maybe they're not. Maybe a smaller move is on the way. I can't really tell. Get your opinion on that, too. But it seems like they've done what they wanted to accomplish, the White Sox, from the start of the offseason at the jump. The latest move was Carlos Rodon. We'll also dis- we'll discuss the added addition, of course. Let's talk about this, James. Overall, you went out and traded Dane Dunning and Avery Weems for Lance Lynn. You're, you're adding a top-of-the-rotation starter to your, to your rotation here. And when you move forward, you're, you're thinking about, okay, where are the holes? Maybe another bat in the outfield. Maybe another bullpen arm while they got that in Liam Hendricks. So where are the other holes now? Is it the back end of the starting pitching staff? Is it really that detrimental to not have another bat on this roster at this point, James, for uh, maybe a typical DH role or, or an outfield or a corner outfield spot? Yeah, I mean, I was hoping that they would add like another left-handed bat, like just at the start, because they, they just, they're so right-handed heavy. You know, and your left-handed addition is Adam Eaton to go along with Grandal and Mancata. I thought Tommy Lastella was, like, the perfect type of guy. But, obviously, like, look, he got a three-year deal in San Francisco. The Sox weren't looking to do that. I mean, even, you know, I think even if you signed, like, a journeyman-type guy like a Brad Miller right now, like, if you look at his number, it's a 128 weighted runs created plus against righties. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, like, at the start, right? Because... Look, I think they're banking big time on Andrew Vaughn this year. I think Andrew Vaughn plays 140-plus games in the big leagues. But Andrew Vaughn, again, like all the questions aside, that's another right-handed hitter. So 
What do you do at the start of the season if your roster is what it is? Is it Leary Garcia like in left and Eloy DHing like that first week? Is it Zach Collins at DH? Like so, like look, there there are some questions, and I understand like why you know the the concern over it. I don't think we are going to be complaining about DH next off season after we see Andrew Vaughn play. Cause we, you know, we've talked about it a lot on this podcast. Like I think that dude's a stud and I think he's going to be like relatively quickly. Um, but yeah, like you're going into the season short again, because this is like kind of what they do. Right. I think the bullpen is great. I think, I think people would be more comfortable with more of a sure thing in the rotation. I think you have three really good ones. And then I think they're depending a lot on Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech and they trust their guys who we haven't seen. Right. And then, you know, you, you have Lopez and they brought back Carlos Rodon to, you know, to maybe pitch out of the fifth spot there. So yeah, like, look, I understand some of the apprehension towards like how they operated this off season. Like, did all that money need to be allocated to closer? I don't know. Like that can be debated, but it's still only like $11 million this year for a closer, which is basically like swapping out Alex Colomay for somebody that's a lot better than Alex Colomay. So there are questions about how they've used their resources. There are definitely questions on like why they were so limited. I mean, their payroll is less than what it would have been in a full season last year, but like with all that being said, like they're, you know, they're one of the favorites in the American league and they didn't really trade that many prospects. So they should have prospects to move at the deadline for whatever, like they feel like they need at that point. Yeah. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, I'm very confident in this team already as it stands. I'm, I also agree that I would have liked to see them maybe pursue a left-handed bat. At the time of Estella, that money was just outrageous for the White Sox perspective. They're not going to attack somebody like that uh, and commit to those dollars and, and years. So I think overall, though, I mean, you can make make an argument that what they have is is good enough, right? But some fans would say, hey, this is a window now, and at least, even if it is the start of the window, go out and attack. Make sure that you capitalize on this opportunity and really solidify yourselves as the powerhouse of the American League. However, it's not always done in a way where you're going out and spending money in free agency and committing all these dollars to players and years committed to players. When in this instance, like you said, the White Sox have Andrew Vaughn sitting there waiting. And we can talk about Vaughn here quickly because you and I both are in agreement. This is a very polished hitter already. We haven't seen him past advanced a Winston Salem, but I mean, that was his draft year. He played over a hundred games that season and then COVID hit. And this is a kid who played in Schaumburg. And you can make the argument too, James, and we're not there, so we can't definitively say, but in evaluating the video as well as listening to experts who, who were there, and of course industry sources too, especially team sources, are going to sell you on their guy. But for whatever reason, in Andrew Vaughn's case, I believe pretty much all of it. I think Andrew Vaughn is going to translate fine this year and then moving forward he is going to be an elite hitter in this league yeah and i think like his presence is the reason why they haven't done stuff right like i think michael brantley is like one of the names that people mentioned a lot this offseason and look i think a lot of people would have been fine if like michael brantley was your addition and they played him in right field right i was not one of those people i don't think he can play that much outfield anymore but so like michael brantley signed for two years 32 million the Sox were never going to do that and you might disagree with like them saying like, oh yeah, we have this spot like here saved for, 
for Andrew Vaughn, who hasn't played above high A, but that's kind of like the way it is, right? I mean, if he's like going to be on this team this year and you have Abreu on the team already and Eloy on the team already and Grandall here, like if you think Andrew Vaughn's playing 130 plus games in the big leagues, then you can't spend any of your limited budget on blocking at bats for him with like an everyday DH. It just doesn't make any sense. Now we'll see if it works. I mean, if Andrew Vaughn comes up and he's terrible, then like, yeah, then like, I think people are going to criticize them. And I think they're probably, you know, going to deserve some of that criticism, but I just think they believe in their guys and it's similar on the pitching side. I think they have high hopes for Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech under Ethan Katz. I think one of the reasons they brought back Carlos Rodon and look, everybody's going to laugh, but I think Carlos Rodon finally got like the, the kick in the ass that he needed. And look, there's, there's been issues with Carlos Rodon for six years now about conditioning and about desire and about, you know, just has he done everything he can to be a big league pitcher? And that answer quite frankly has been no to this point. And from what I've heard, like he has a personal trainer for the first time ever. And he kind of knows like, look, this is like his last opportunity here. So will he look any different? Will it work? Will he stay healthy? I have no idea, but for $3 million, you know, if that's what you have to spend, I think it's just as worthwhile as adding Rick Porcello or, you know, one of the other names that's out there and, you know, Rodon, right? So like that, that I think is fine. It, it just, it always will come back to, you know, how much money you have to spend more so than how they allocated that money to me. To me, the biggest issue is that you couldn't just do all of it. And, you know, they're given a budget and they worked within it. And I think they worked within it to a degree, you know, to, you know, try to fill all their holes. Right. And the Adam Eaton thing is going to be questionable until it's not like he, he could be great this year. And then, you know, nobody will have anything to say about it, but if he's bad and it's kind of like Nomar Mazzara, like everybody's going to, you know, criticize the front office for like patching together right field again. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and that criticism will be warranted, but if Andrew Vaughn's really good and right field's like, you know, the worst spot in your, on your team and Adam Eaton's the worst player on your team, like I think you could do a lot worse than that, quite frankly. Yeah. And I think the Eaton, you're just looking for him to be an upgrade over what you got in right field. Anyway, we've been saying this. So if he provides, Anything more than what Nomar Mazzara plus did out and right last year. I think it's it's going to be a win in the White Sox minds. And you mentioned a lot of, of the rotation, too. I think I, I'm i totally in agreement, and I think the, the player that really stands out in this conversation among the rotation is Dylan Cease. I think they, they're really committed to Dylan Cease this season because of what we already know about him, his major league experience, and, and the time already invested in getting him right. So that is your back end of the rotation starter for whatever five. I mean, he's going to be a part of this conversation and Ethan Katz has a project on his hands. Cause we, I'd like to see how cease is able to fix his ineffectiveness that we saw last year as well. So, I mean, that's a huge part of it. And part of the reason why the white Sox weren't willing to go out and acquire some high name mid rotation, top rotation starter on top of the Lance Lynn move you already have what they feel now is seven major league starters with Carlos Rodon attached. And as we wrap uh, put a bow on the Andrew Vaughn lineup discussion, just want to make mention too, that the White Sox have flexibility there. And I think it opens up an opportunity for Zach Collins because I mean, it is what it is at this point. What do you have in this player? And you won't know until you allow him to get at bats. So he needs to play 
that goes into the discussion we were having regarding DH, but also in the outfield, if you want to move Eloy out of there and get him in DH, and then you play Lieri or Adam Engel, Adam Eaton, Luis Robert, I mean, that's your outfield at this point. So, you know, you got to take it for what it is. And the White Sox are committed to sitting with it right now. And I think this is a fine lineup. I think this is a lineup too, James, that real quick, it doesn't really necessarily need another addition to be a playoff World Series contender. No, I mean, it was the best offense in the American League last year, and Yoan Moncada did nothing. So, yeah, like I think they're looking at internal improvements. I think you have Moncada and Robert are both going to be quite a bit better, right? Maybe Abreu's not quite as awesome next year, but I think they're still counting on him for something and you got nothing out of DH. So yeah, like I think the lineup's fine. I think pitching is the much bigger issue and they fix that at least in the top three and they want to see their guys towards the back end. You know, somebody mentioned, I think, I don't know if it was on the 108 fest the other night or somewhere else, but you know, they kind of said that if Rick Hahn was doing like a Q and a with fans right now and fans, and I forgot who said this and fans asked him like about Trevor Bauer, right? Like, Oh, why aren't you signing Trevor Bauer? You said the money would be spent. My guess is internally they feel like they might have two of their own Trevor Bowers is what somebody said in Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech, who, you know, this is probably Dylan Cease's last hurrah for a rotation spot, right? Like under Ethan Katz. Like if Ethan Katz can't fix him, he's probably going into the bullpen, I would think. And Michael Kopech hasn't pitched at all. Like Mike, mm-hmm. Michael Kopech at this time next year could be like the White Sox number two starter going away and nobody would even – like question it. That's like the type of upside he has. I mean, he's still a top 40 prospect in baseball and he hasn't pitched in over two years. So yeah, I just, I just think that's like a big part of this thing and they weren't going to block these guys. And then hopefully, you know, you're in first or you're right in it at the deadline and you have prospects to deal at the deadline. You know, the one other thing with the Adam Eaton move that I found interesting last week was Jock Peterson signing with the Cubs. And that's a guy that we talked about a lot. Like I thought Jock Peterson was part of the outfield plans. I was basically told by multiple people, like, Jock Peterson's the guy. That's that's who they're going to sign. It could be any day. I wrote an article on it, and then all of a sudden they signed Adam Eaton. And I was like, oh, all right. Like, you know, I just thought maybe I had bad info or what. Well, then we find out, you know, the White Sox offered Jock Peterson a one-year deal for $10 million. He turned it down. And the way the White Sox do business is, like, they set a value and they pretty much stick to it. They offered seven to Eaton. Eaton took it and the option, and Peterson waited and gambled and then lost, quite frankly, because he only got yep. one seven. So, look, it sounds like Peterson was their number one target in right field, and then they moved on quickly. Now, you know, you could you could question whether they misplayed the market by not waiting, right? But could you imagine if they would have just done nothing at right field all winter? How insufferable like everything would have been. <laughs> My God. So yeah. so I I understand it, especially if Han knows, like, look, I have 27, 28 million dollars to spend. Adam Eaton's gonna be seven. I'm gonna get the closer that Tony wants. Like, I, I get it. Like it's it's not, you know, you you have to like allocate the resources that you have. But I was glad to know that the people that told me that weren't wrong. It was just that, you know, Jock kind of waited and didn't want to sign a one year deal at that time. Yeah, the <laughs> the outfield thing. Yeah, just imagine if the White Sox weren't aggressive in, in filling that hole. Oh, my God. Work. Could you imagine? Because <laughs> so well, that was the argument, right? People were like, well, they could have just waited and signed Jock now. I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Sure, no, they, sure, I, sure they could have. That <laughs> is a that is a really great piece of information there because, yeah, I saw that report that Peterson was offered $10 million 
to come to the White Sox. I think he bet on himself and the market was quiet. So Yeah, I think he you know, wanted multiple years at the time. There's no reason for the White Sox to wait, right? Yeah. They think he's not taking less. They figure somebody a month from now will give him multiple years. We're not interested in multiple years, so we're going to move on. Well, he was wrong. He ended up taking 1-7 with the Cubs. And now Rick Hahn is just going to have to trade for him at the 2021 trade deadline. <laughs> hey, that's that's exactly what happened. I mean, there's nothing there, you can't debate that. that. That is what happened. That's what's out. Yeah, there. like if you want to, you want you want to tell me like Adam Eaton shouldn't have been the guy, and you want to go cheaper sure. and do like a Robbie Grossman sure. or something. Fine, I'm cool with that. Like that's fine. Like I didn't advocate for Adam Eaton either. I just understood yeah. why like they went to whatever their plan B was. And you, yeah, I mean, people listening to this podcast, you know. Understand that Jack Peterson was there. He was on the table. He was in consideration because it was reported. This is a this is you know the way the White Sox are doing things. And when you really sit back, take a step back and look at the way the White Sox do business, you know you try and put yourself in their shoes. And like you were saying, Rick Hahn had a budget. He's trying to spend within that budget, not to go over the budget, and it leaves him some flexibility potentially at the trade deadline if he does want to acquire a contract where he can afford to take on that money. Because again. We're in February. We have Andrew Vaughn in, in terms of the White Sox perspective, Michael Kopech, Dylan Cease, like these players who are question marks, you know, Luis Robert we can even throw in there who we're not sure how they're going to translate this season. It gives them time to evaluate is what I'm trying to say. And, I mean, that may not go over well with fans because I know fans, a lot of them are, are loud about the White Sox being aggressive here. But, you know, the White Sox are already pretty – pretty well built within their depth and why are they in this position it's because of the way that they've been doing business and the way Rick Hahn's been maneuvering around that cap budget uh placed upon the higher power so I mean that's really where the White Sox stand at this point and we we talked about a lot about the lineup and the players uh the, the position players but also mentioned about the starting pitching staff and we have to get to Carlos Rodon you know we've been teasing it all podcast Carlos Rodon was non-tendered and the White Sox, what was it, four and a half million, James? If the White Sox decided to tender him a contract, was that what uh, the value would have been? Yeah, it might have been closer to five, but yeah, it was. Yeah, it was something. It wasn't quite six million. It was under six million. I know that. So Carlos Rodon comes back with the White Sox at three million, signs a one-year deal, and you already hit on it. You talked about the conditioning, and maybe yeah, he he was kicked in the caboose a little bit to get his stuff right if he wants to stay in this league. I wonder how the interest was across the league uh, for Carlos Rodon outside of the White Sox. But three million dollars, one year deal, left-handed starter, back end rotation depth, on paper, you know, sounds fine. But we know Carlos Rodon, and we know as fans and, and observers and White Sox fans, like you know, we've seen a lot of Carlos Rodon over the years. And when he showed up to spring training at the start of 2020, James, I saw him up close and personal. He was out of shape. This guy was not ready to pitch, and it was clear. And it showed in his performance. And we saw his body break down. You know, he had this shoulder injury in 2019 that he was dealing with, and then he had to go under Tommy John surgeries. You know, th this is a big major, you know, major surgery for a pitcher to have to overcome. And then when you have – you know, the issues with his, his physical limitations, then yeah, you're concerned. We see, we saw him in game three of the wild card. He was unable to get one out and now the White Sox have him back. So the plan now, James, not to bash Carlos Rodon so much, but the plan now, it seems to me that the White Sox want to do is get him back. Right. You know, they have the relationship with him internally. They know how to work with him and he's still got value. And I think they want to use as many arms as they can 
to bridge the gap before they feel Kopech is ready. And I think Carlos Rodon is a part of that conversation. Yeah, so I just wrote an article the other day for Southside Sox about that. And the whole point was like building a bridge to Kopech, right? And that's why, look, this was never going to be like three years and 45 million for Jake Odorizzi because Michael Kopech is pitching for the White Sox this year. And, you know, it's probably not going to be at the outset because he's going to be on an innings limit. And when you got a 26-man roster, you can't really carry him and limit his innings early. So I think he's going to go down for a little bit and pitch. I don't, I don't know, like, what exactly that's going to look like. And you might know better than me. Like, what? I mean, I, he, he's not pitching 140 innings this year. I don't know if he's pitching 120. So, but the, the innings that he does throw, like, you want him to be in Chicago and you want him to be towards the end of the year and you want him available for the playoffs if necessary. So they're going to have to massage those innings early in the season. Carlos Rodon, I think, probably took a look at this rotation and was like, I can win the number five spot. I would hope that he would think that. So I think that's why he's back. I mean, my guess is he didn't have a ton of interest elsewhere. He took a $3 million guaranteed deal to return here to somewhere he knows. It's going to be a lot different, I think, with Ethan Katz. But, you know, it's like the last hurrah of Carlos Rodon. And hopefully, you know, hopefully he's he's better than, than he's been. I, you know, I was a big fan. I, I, I was, that was like the most excited I've ever been in a baseball draft is when the Marlins passed on him and the White Sox got him. I was stoked for that pick. And, you know, it just has not worked out to this point, but I do, you know, I think holding last year against him is a bit of an issue. I think like the ramp up hurt him quite a bit and then they pitched him in relief in some bad spots. I think the one thing that we learned for sure last year is that Carlos Rodon is not a relief pitcher. So, you know, if he fails starting this year, I'm not totally sure what his future holds because I just don't know if like that role is ever going to work for him unless he like completely changes himself. But yeah, I mean, he was thrown into the fire last year and failed, but that, you know, I think it was a bit unfair how he was used last year. And I think, look, for I mentioned it earlier for $3 million, like I think it's a flyer worth taking. I do think, you know, there's going to be some more pitching added I, you know, probably on minor league deals to compete with Carlos Rodon. I know for a fact that they like Mike Fulchinevitz from, from the Braves. And, you know, there's some other teams that are really good at identifying like bounce back candidates, like the Rays and the twins that are interested. So if they can land Fulty, like to compete with Carlos Rodon on a minor league deal, I think that would be nice too. It's not what everybody wanted, obviously, but you know, you add depth, you go into spring training, you try to get through April and May, and then hopefully Michael Kopech's here for the next five seasons. Yeah, it, you mentioned it. It's it is unfair to criticize Rodon to a degree in last season, and a lot of it has to do with him recuperating from Tommy John surgery. I mean, that's a big deal for anybody, and especially for him to get thrown right into the fire and, like you said, you know, into a position that he's never really done before. It it was a tough situation, but now he's back. He's comfortable, hopefully, within the organization and doing what he does. He's been doing his entire career, and I know he's got that competitive fire. So there's a, there's an edge to him that you could just assume, and hopefully like everything is in the right spot, and we'll see how the new organization, what the personnel, the coaching staff, how they're able to uh, help Carlos Rodon get back into the swing of things. Because you know, fastball slider type guy, but if he's not in the the mid to upper nineties, there's not a lot of value there. He's gonna have to develop a third pitch. He's got to get better with his changeup. Yeah, and he, you know, he he's never commanded the fastball well enough to not throw high velocity, right? So, I mean, when he was 
throwing 96 consistently and then dropping a 70 grade slider like it was fine right but when you're 92 93 and you can't get and then people are just not going to swing at your slider they're just going to sit on your fastball so yeah like i think you know thinking he is what he was last year because of those performances like we said is a little bit unfair but the other stuff yeah. the other stuff's completely warranted the reason why he was the third overall pick and he's gotten to you know to non-tender status to signing a one-year $3 million contract is because he's underachieved and there's no third pitch. And, you know, there's been a myriad of issues that, you know, have been talked about for years with him. And he, you know, he gets another chance to, you know, try to show his worth here. Well, that's where we stand, James, so far within the 2021 Chicago White Sox depth chart. And I want to talk to you real quick before we move on and we'll end this podcast here soon. We'll also tease what we have going on at future Sox on the main site some of the uh, some of the lists that we're putting out across the month and what you can expect as well. But some of the names linked. Now, you said Mike Fultonevich, and I'm a little weary about him. Obviously, just a flyer type deal. I'm I'm curious to see how he how effective he can be. But I, I'm I don't know. I, I've just kind of moved on from him as a viable starter. But I don't know. He's got to prove that he's not that anymore, right? He's got to be able to come out and pitch. Um, he's had quite the fallout. Uh, from his time in Atlanta, but he, ha- he has, and I, yeah. you know, I, I agreed with you until I saw that the Rays were interested. And then I was like, Ooh, <laughs> yeah, now the fun. white, now the white Sox must sign him. If the Rays want him, <laughs> I, I want him. So. Yeah. So, I mean, that's fair, but you know, let's, let's see him work. You know, who knows? This is, this is a prime opportunity for the white Sox to capitalize on a low, low risk, low cost uh, flyer, but outside of Fulton average, that's just one name. You know, we saw, we mentioned Bob Nightingale, <laughs> report on the Nelson Cruz uh, situation. And Nelson Cruz apparently is like taking it back to Minnesota. Was he ever in consideration with the White Sox? I know Bob Nightingale said no, but you know where it's coming from, you got to take it one ear and out the other sometimes. But is there was there a legit interest in the White Sox pursuing a guy like Nelson Cruz? Yeah, so it's very strange, right? Because so I talked to Hector Gomez who swears that, you know, the White Sox at a minimum checked in, right? Because so Hector Gomez is just like, you know, he's the Dominican, you know, reporter, you know, not that like he's Bob Nightingale, but I mean, he is somebody that, you know, agents from Dominican players like run to, and he knows a lot of those players. So like, I don't think Hector was like trying to use the White Sox, but somebody definitely might have like told him like, hey, put this out there about the White Sox so the Twins give Cruz more money. Look, I heard from decent sources that I've had in the past that the White Sox had like an offer for Cruz and that like that would be extra like outside of the budget right like if Cruz committed they would just like do it but he's like one of the only players that they would do it for and then it kind of like leaked out and it was like those weird Mm -hmm. those weird food accounts were like tweeting about (laughs) it and then all of a sudden Bob comes out and like puts down the hammer kind of like Jerry like wanted it out there and it's so weird because like if they truly aren't interested, like there's no reason to come out and hammer it down that much because all you're doing then is saving the twins money by coming out and saying that. Like let I understand like if if it's not real and you want to temper the expectations of your fan base, right? Like I understand that part of it. But if you're out and you're saying you're out, like you're helping your division rival get a core player back for cheaper which is the part that doesn't really make any sense. So look, I, 
the the way I see it, like it's probably Andrew Vaughn in that spot, not from the beginning. Right. I don't think it's going to be Nelson Cruz. I think he's going back to the Twins. It's just the whole thing was like super strange because yeah, because yeah. Hector Gomez like gets a bad reputation, but he's had lots of solid stuff too. So yeah, it was I mean, just very the whole thing was very strange, and it seemed orchestrated because of where the information was coming from. And it's not the first time that a reporter was used for leverage, right? I mean, it, who knows where the leak came from, from from Nelson Cruz's camp or whatever, you know? I mean, yeah, and the, if that's the case. Well, and the tweets from Nightingale look like Reinsdorf borrowed his phone and sent him himself, you know? So, I mean, it's just kind of like, oh, they're tapped out, they're out of money. And then they spent $3 million on Rodan four days later. So, you know, I, who knows? I don't know. Like yeah, I, yeah. I just, I just don't think like, I think ideally Nelson Cruz would like go to a team that's not the twins. Like that's where I was hoping the DH was in the NL and the Padres or somebody would just like give him 30 million for two years and he'd leave the twins. Cause I think, <laughs> I think him leaving the twins helps the Sox more than oh, him yeah. coming here. Because if he comes here, he's going to block Andrew Vaughn and people are going to be cursing at me by me saying that. But like Nelson Cruz is totally the guy that comes here and slugs like three thirty, and it's like <sighs> over. You know, it's just like, oh, well, that was fun. Like we gave him 15 million and he, you know, he hit like 13 homers, like in a full season. He looks like yeah. Edwin Encarnacion last year. I saw last, I think I saw yesterday that Edwin Encarnacion wants to play two more seasons because he's 76 homers away from 500. Oh, okay. Like, I don't think he could hit, I don't think he could hit 76 homers if he played 15 more seasons, like at this point. So, man, I mean, the White Sox have really had good luck with uh, those slugging. Yeah, free agent no, I know. It's so, yeah, just, you know, I think once Andrew Vaughn gets here, I think people will stop talking about the DH issues. Well, so. yeah, no, I mean, that's the thing, because we've been, uh, we've been ramping this kid up since the get go. I mean, after his first season, once he was drafted, I mean, that was the right pick at the time, James, when the White Sox decided on the college player and not the high school player. And, oh, Andrew Vaughn's a first base DH type. He doesn't really have any other value. We already have uh, Jose Abreu. Hey, whoa, whoa, let's back it up here, because this is. You just wait, you know, just watch the kid go to work at the plate, watch his plate appearance or watch his approach, watch his, I love the way that he attacks in at bat. Uh, he's got great, a great eye at the plate. I, I love his short compact swing that does pack a punch. He's got a lot of barrel control. I mean, this is a kid, like I said, who's only one year into his professional career. If you exclude the, the Schomburg appearance, which is a huge huge value to his game for him to see major league type pitching and play, you know, intra-squad games. That is a huge upgrade in his game, you know? So I don't know how much that plays into effect on how he's improved and a lot more one-on-one time across the 2020 season with the biomechanics trainers who are looking at the analytics in his swing and the data that suggests, Hey, this is how you can improve. I mean, there's a lot that went into the 2020 developmental year that we aren't privy to, and I think it really did impact Andrew Vaughn in a major way, James. Yeah, I think so. And look, they almost called him up last year, and I don't think they would have even considered it had they thought that he wasn't ready. Like, I hate the argument that he hasn't played above high A because nobody knows, right? Like, if he would have played a minor league season last year, and look, I obviously he didn't, but if he would have, I don't think anybody would be questioning the fact that he would be up relatively soon this year. And I think it's just tough. It's tough to figure out like, you know, how, how much did what he do like on the side last year matter, you know, and he got more, more individual instruction. And I think for a guy like him, 
Like, I think he's fine. I think Andrew Vaughn will come up and I think he'll be, he'll be just fine. He, he, he's not going to be the best player on the team, but he doesn't need to be. I'm really looking forward to what he's able to provide the White Sox, uh, even defensively too. Why not? I want to see him out in the field. Most likely we're going to see him a lot at DH, at least to start. But yeah, this is a special talent, at least uh, in terms of a prospect. We'll see how he's able to translate to the Major League scene, James. And as we wrap up this podcast, let's talk about what we have going on here at Future Sox on the site. Lists, I guess you could say are our thing. It's a lot of fun for fans to engage and evaluate, you know, the type of prospects in a very uh, simple level of where they stand within the organization. And we got to give credit to guys and women across Fangraphs and Baseball America, Major League Baseball Pipeline, MLB.com, those who evaluate these prospects and the athletic as well to give us a wide range of perspective and also internally, for us to see these players internally and to evaluate on our own, we're creating top 10 positional rankings for the Chicago White Sox prospects. Some are top five because uh, we want to limit ourselves in, in specific areas like catcher. But keep an eye on that. You can already go to futuresox.com and see what we already have released what is it, James? Is it the outfield? And what was released today? Was it the catchers we did, today? Yeah, we did catchers today, which is, you know, it's a, a bit of a rough list, I think, at this point. And, you know, I think people people are aware of that. I mean, when you're some of your top guys are German Mercedes and, you know, Sebi Zavala, who, look, could be major league contributors, but when they're 27, 28 years old already, I, mean, I do think that, you know, catcher's probably an area of need. I think, you know, in this system, middle infield and, starting pitching and even relief pitching is like a little bit deeper. Um, and then the corner we're doing the corners together this year. That's a pretty good list that I'll release uh, this weekend. And those are, those are some pretty interesting names and corner prospects. So, you know, I think it's six, it's six lists total. I think we got middle infielders going out tomorrow and then we'll go starting pitching relievers and then first third together, um, you know, leading into when we do our top 30 week later, later this month. Yeah, I'm excited for that, of course. And the catching list, it's interesting if you aren't paying attention to the catchers in the White Sox system outside of your mean Mercedes. And I guess Sebi's of all, because we got a taste of, you know, Sebi a little bit. So yeah, head over to futuresocks.com once you're done listening to this podcast and check out the list that we already have posted. Uh, and also keep an eye on, like James said, the top 30 list. Now, if you subscribe to our Patreon, we're going to be submitting our individual list to Patreon and then have a little bit of uh, our rationale as to why we listed our 30 prospects, best prospects in the White Sox system where we did. So a lot of fun coming up, James, plus a lot of the uh, intricacies of transitioning, hopefully to a full minor league baseball season. We'll have a lot of those recaps covered as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's a, you know, it's a big month for us. And then Spring training starts. I think it's limited media, but you know, hopefully we'll get Sean out there and we'll get some video and some, you know, some photos and stuff for the for the people that are interested. All right, there you have it. This is another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Next time, James, we'll uh, we'll hopefully have a guest for our listeners and we'll we'll dive in. We have a lot of guests in mind that we'd like to bring on to the show and pick their brain. Those connected to the uh, White Sox a little bit better than we are, and minor league baseball as well. So that should be fun. James, thanks so much as always for jumping on. All right, man. It was good as always. That's James Fox. My name's Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of the Future Sox Podcast. Go to futuresox.com. Check out our entire, well, what we have to offer. Go to anchor.fm forward slash futuresox to check out our entire library here in the podcast. And subscribe to us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google. 
leave us a review. Hey, check us out also on YouTube. We got some stuff posted on YouTube. Just search Future Socks on YouTube and you know give us a thumbs up and a like and all that good stuff. For James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Again, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you all next time.